Welcome to season six of the Florida Institute for Child Welfare podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Magruder. This season, we will hear from researchers, advocates, and folks with lived experience in child welfare. Through these conversations, we hope to gain insight on how to meaningfully co-create knowledge alongside those we aim to serve here at the Institute, children, families, and workers. Let's get started. Today, we're joined by Dr. Annette Samantin-Jones, an associate professor at the School of Social Work at University at Buffalo. Annette is leading the evaluation of a relational permanency pilot program called Follow the Love, otherwise known as FTL, which is being funded by the Institute. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks, Lisa. Also joining us is Dr. Lisa Shelby, an associate professor at the Florida State University College of Social Work and an Institute affiliate. Lisa is a co-investigator on the FTL pilot. And I echo Annette. Thanks for having us. We're also joined by Elizabeth McGillan, Youth Wellbeing Program Coordinator at Family Support Services, or FSS, which is the lead community-based care agency in Northeast Florida. Elizabeth has been working with the FTL team as a facilitator, which we're going to learn more about today. Hey, happy to be included and invited. Great. Thanks so much for joining us, everybody. I'd like to start with you, Annette. So a couple of years ago, Dr. Elizabeth Winter, the executive director of the Selfless Love Foundation, approached the Institute for support related to implementing and evaluating Follow the Love. So Annette, I know you became involved because of your expertise in relational permanency. And I'd like to ask about the program itself shortly, but first, can you tell us a little bit about what relational permanency means? So relational permanence, I think most folks that are familiar with child welfare are familiar with what legal permanence is. And so that's a legal relationship that a child has either through reunification with their family, adoption, transfer of legal guardianship, which of course is very important in child welfare. And it's one of the key pillars of child welfare is ensuring permanence for youth. But increasingly in recent years, we've also paid attention to relational permanence and as the term suggests, this is really thinking about those interpersonal connections that youth might have with adults that are really important to them. When we think about relational permanence, it's those lifelong, meaningful connections that youth have with the people in their lives. So oftentimes that might be with the family members, that could be with siblings or extended family The work that I've done is really focused on the relational permanence, thinking about lifelong parent-like connections. So ensuring that a youth has that sense of belonging, where they feel connected to a caregiver in a parent-like connection. And so when I use that term relational permanence, that's really what I'm thinking about. Great. And Elizabeth, your role at FSS is focused on youth well-being. So can you tell us a little bit about your role and then your perspective on the importance of relational permanency? Yeah. So in our youth well-being department, we kind of jokingly call ourselves team teen because we work with our 14 to 17 year olds, preparing them for adulthood, whatever that might look like. Just like she just shared, there's different versions of what permanency might look like for our youth once they turn 18. It could look like aging out, which is the common term for going into our independent living services or kind of being on their own, or it could look like they get adopted or they're reunified. But either way, we know those times in the teen years are important for preparing for that. 
So that's what our department focuses on through life skills work. And now also we've incorporated a little bit more of the relational permanency work, making sure that a teen knows who their people are before they turn 18 so that they feel less alone as they make that big jump into adulthood. And before I jump into the next question about the FTL pilot, is there anything else about relational permanence or permanency that you all want to add? The only thing I would add is that I'm really heartened to see agencies like FSS and other agencies that are partnering with Selfless Love, but really throughout the country. I think this is just such critically important work. We know that youth do better when they're connected to supportive adults, and particularly for youth who have been involved in the child welfare system. This is a system that historically has separated youth from people that are important to them. And so I think through these efforts, we're really seeing an acknowledgement and honoring those relationships that we know are just so important for youth in general, but particularly important for youth who really have had disrupted supportive networks. And so I'm just really excited to be part of this project. And I love how you point out that the relationships can be varied, right? And unique to the individual youth, which I think is an important aspect. Out of curiosity, and this may be a good question for Lisa or Annette, what does the research tell us about outcomes as it relates to relational permanency? So we do know just from general youth development literature, we know that youth tend to do better as they're in that emerging adulthood, transitioning to adulthood stage youth tend to do better when they have supportive connections. The research varies a little bit, but there is some research to suggest that youth that even have one supportive adult in their lives tend to do better. We encourage youth to really think about a network of support and having multiple people in their lives that can help them as they reach their goals, as they transition to adulthood. But even having one supportive adult that's really committed to a lifelong relationship with the youth can really make a difference across multiple well-being domains that could be higher educational outcomes, employment, financial stability, social skills, self-esteem, mental health. So really across many different domains, we know that youth tend to do better when they're connected to a supportive adult. And one thing I'd like to emphasize is that while we are talking today about a specific program that's geared towards young people in foster care, when we're talking about permanency, when we're talking about relationships and support, this is not something that should feel like rocket science. And I don't want to minimize the research that we're doing, but when we think about what the average 18 year old is facing in life, most of them aren't prepared to be on their own. And even beyond 18, throughout adulthood, we are often focused on this concept of independence, but really society is very interdependent and we need one another. I don't think that anyone listening to us talking today or the four of us can say that there hasn't been some time in the last week that we haven't had a question that we've reached out to someone or we have wanted to reach out to someone. So when we're thinking about relational permanency, this is something that all people need. And this is not something that's specifically unique to foster youth, but to go back to what Annette was saying, that sometimes the process 
of a young person entering foster care has disrupted some relationships. And I would also add that there may have been some abuse or neglect that was not conducive to forming strong interpersonal relationships. And so this whole focus for youth in foster care is really to make sure that they have what we all need. That's a great addition. Thank you. And before we get into the FTL pilot, I'm just curious, Elizabeth, prior to engaging in the FTL work, how has FSS in the past tried to focus on relational permanency with youth that you all are working with? So relational permanency prior to a lot of this conversation was kind of focused towards those legal permanency avenues. So it was a lot of finding family members that they might have permanent living situations with, or at least mentors in their life. So we would have some mentor programs. We would set young people up with adults that could help them in education and career paths and things like that. But it did feel more targeted purpose rather than just a relationship for the purpose of a relationship. That's been an interesting shift that we've seen. And it's been a shift that we've been really happy to see because not only are we still helping with all those other things, But we're also just helping these teens to know that they're not alone. They don't have to be scared to turn 18. They don't have to be scared that they're not going to have an adult to call when they have those questions that Lisa was talking about. And thank you for indulging my side questions. It's my curiosity. So Annette, Lisa, now that we have an understanding of the need for relational permanency support, can you tell us a little bit about the Follow the Love pilot? Sure, absolutely. You already mentioned that Dr. Elizabeth Winter through the Selfless Love Foundation, was really the leader in starting this pilot project. The Follow the Love pilot project is really, as the name suggests, is really meant to start thinking about relational permanence and thinking about how agencies can help support, strengthen those connections that youth already have. And so this pilot is really focused not on major investments or major changes in how agencies are doing the work, but really thinking about changing the perspective, changing the conversation, and hopefully changing the focus a little bit. As Liz mentioned earlier, really thinking about as you're working with youth in different capacities, whether you're a caseworker or an independent living worker, in making sure that we're having these conversations with youth, first of all, to identify people that are already really important to them and make sure that the agency is using resources to ensure that those connections are maintained. And then also hopefully to build on that in the long run is for youth who maybe do not have those connections, maybe their networks have been so disrupted that they really cannot identify supportive adults that hopefully agencies are taking the time while they're working with youth to think about who they might connect to youth with. Maybe that's someone that they've lost connections with. You know, maybe 10 years ago, a youth had a connection with a supportive adult that was not safe or healthy at that time, but people change and maybe now that person could be a resource for the youth. This initial pilot is really starting with that kind of starting point of let's change the conversation and ensure that we're talking with youth about this. And again, these are working with older youth. So while they're transitioning to adulthood, what can the agency do to ensure that they're at least maintaining those connections that they've identified? The way that the pilot is structured through the Selfless Love Foundation is to work with pilot agencies that have identified follow the love facilitators like Liz. And so the facilitators 
might have different roles within the agency, but there's someone that is identified to work with this group of youth to start to identify those supportive connections. The facilitator then also reaches out to the supportive adults to let them know about what the pilot is and let them know that they have been identified by a youth as someone who's important to them. And so the facilitator is really just that. They're facilitating a relationship and a commitment and thinking about what role the adult might play for that youth. And so they're facilitating that reconnection or new conversation between the supportive adult and the youth. And so Elizabeth, you've been involved, as Annette mentioned, as a facilitator for Follow the Love. So what has that experience been like for you? It has been eye-opening. It has been educational. It's been something I've been very grateful for in this year. You know, I only took on my role a year ago, so it was great to start it early on in that role and get to experience kind of a growing knowledge along with Annette and Lisa of how these things can work and how they might not work. (laughs) So it's been wonderful. There's definitely a broad spectrum of where our teens embrace this versus where there were some triggering moments. We're having conversations about who do you have? Who's in your corner can trigger a teen into awareness of those lost connections of those feelings of, I I don't know who I have. So we definitely experienced that too, but we experienced great joy with the program. We did have a handful of youth that were able to sign multiple packs Just like Annette said, it's a network, right? So these youth signed permanency packs with these adults that had been identified as these connections. The adults were able to identify what long-term commitments they wanted to make to these young people. Anything from a home to go for the holidays to a place to do laundry to a person to talk to about career advice or just a mentor to check in once a week kind of a thing. So when it comes to that network, what's really important and what we tried to emphasize to the teen is yeah, no, one adult might be everything for you, but that's where we kind of learn to place these people. We learn, you know, you might still have a great connection with mom, but she might not be able to give you education advice, but you know, Mr. Tom from your school is a great mentor for education and he wants to step into that role. So it was interesting to see the youth kind of open their eyes to building those networks and recognizing that where one person may have let them down or may have not been able to provide something there are other adults in their life that were ready to step up. So it was great to see that. It was great to see the youth growing confidence, knowing that they had these adults in their corner. I know when we did one packed signing, it was the next day that that young man was on top of his applications for college. And he was calling us all a week later that he'd been accepted to a local program. And it motivated him to know that he had these people in his corner too. So that was great to see. That's great. So it sounds like from your perspective at FSS, you're seeing some changes occur as a result of this pilot in a positive direction for these youth. And I think your experience definitely speaks to what Annette was talking about earlier around kind of diversifying what those supports look like. And so I think that that's great. Lisa and Annette, from the pilot perspective, from the evaluation perspective, what types of things are you finding with these initial pilot sites? One of the things that 
I'm excited that we're learning about is just how diverse the experiences are when we're talking to the facilitators and we're meeting with facilitators on a regular basis and they're sharing what's working, what may be less efficient or not optimal. I don't want to be negative, but we actually have learned some things that we could be doing better. And so that's one of the things that's really exciting to me is, is that we're learning the need to have the follow the love be very unique to the individual young person. So even just how the facilitator and youth connect and the frequency, there's an assessment that we have the youth complete. And some facilitators have said, I can't sit down the first time I meet the youth or even the second time I need to really build the relationship One of the main things that we're learning, although it's not unsurprising, just the need for it to be so specifically tailored to the young person and the facilitator and the agency. So it's so context specific. I also think that one of the other things that we're learning is that this isn't easy, that shouldn't come as a real surprise. Permanency and relationships take time to develop and the follow the love takes an investment in time of the facilitator and the young person. This is never going to be 20 minutes and everything is solved and we have a permanency pact. This is going to take the facilitator, the agency, the youth, and the adults in the young person's lives time to invest. And I think that speaks to what you were talking about earlier, right? I mean, Annette, you sort of alluded to this idea that it's not perhaps a heavy financial investment. And then we have Lisa saying, and also this isn't rocket science. This is something we can be doing, but not to be misled that it is time intensive and it does require thoughtfulness and sort of that tailoring to each individual youth. So I appreciate that perspective, Lisa, as far as not seeing this as just a check the box thing that we're doing for our youth. Annette, were you going to say something? Yeah. So to Lisa's point, I would really agree that it really depends on the youth. And so I think part of the learning that Lisa was just talking about is really being intentional when the agencies have identified the youth and the facilitators beginning to work with the youth to really understand where that youth might be coming from. Again, there are youth that may already very clearly have an adult identified that they already have a connection with and that just might need a little bit of support to have more intentional conversations about what that support looks like and to be very clear on that versus, again, that youth that may really struggle to identify even one person who is not a paid, you know, staff to work with them. And so there is this whole continuum. And so for this pilot, I think we're focused on how to integrate this into the work of agencies. There are other models out there. And I think we're already talking about also identifying youth in that second group that really are struggling to figure out who even one supportive adult is and so thinking through other other models out there, there are other family search and engagement that are more intensive models. For some kids, there might be that higher investment and really making sure that supports are in place for those youth who have difficulty identifying supportive adults. The only other thing I would say about that is, again, this might go beyond the scope of this pilot, but What I hope to come out of this is agencies are starting to shift these conversations and have these conversations 
is that this is also a perfect time to work with those youth too. So while youth are in care, while they have people around them that are working with them as they transition to adulthood, this is really the perfect time to help them think through how to navigate those difficult relationships, sometimes challenging relationships, but very real connections they may have with their biological families. We know many youth that age out of foster care, if they don't have a permanency plan, will absolutely go back to their biological families. And so helping you think through how to have good boundaries, how to ensure that they have healthy relationships, and how to renegotiate and navigate some of those difficult relationships. My hope is that we're all moving in that direction. I'm excited about this initial step of really just shifting the conversation. So Annette, Lisa, as you know, this season is focused on elevating lived experience, which is a priority of ours at the Institute. Can you tell us ways in which the Follow the Love team has engaged with youth or members of the workforce to help shape the Follow the Love pilot program? One of the things that's really exciting in working with Dr. Winter at the Selfless Love Foundation is that she has a really robust, I think she calls it her kitchen cabinet, an advisory group that includes agency representatives, state representatives, and also youth representatives. So I think one of the exciting parts for me of joining this team and this evaluation of Follow the Love pilot project is that youth really helped create and shape what this pilot was going to look like in these pilot agencies in Florida. And so I think from the very beginning, youth were really front and center and part of that discussion and part of those conversations about what this should look like from their perspectives. That was really exciting. The other piece that I think is really exciting about how we've continued with this pilot project is that both the folks who are implementing Follow the Love, that includes people at Selfless Love who are overseeing that process and the facilitators themselves, that we do as an evaluation team, we meet with all of those folks monthly. Lisa already mentioned this, but I do think that this is really a key piece of the process that allows us to shift things as we're going along in real time, in the moment, making sure that facilitators have what they need to do the work. And then now we're also working with the second round of agencies in the pilot project. And so Liz was part of what we call round one of the pilot. And so we really learned a lot from Liz and her cohort of facilitators and thinking through What types of supports do the facilitators need? And that, again, is directly from them sharing both the things that are working and some of the struggles that they were having. One of my favorite memories or moments of this entire project was very early on, probably the first or second time that we had these monthly meetings. And I can't remember who asked the question. Maybe it was Annette about, well, how are things going or what kind of feedback do we have? And there were all of these like downcast eyes, like people didn't want to answer the question. And we invited people to criticize us and make suggestions about what we could be doing better. And it was really an interesting moment that I felt that in engaging the professionals in this project. And so we were very humble, hopefully we were perceived as humble, in saying, we don't have answers. You're the experts. We need your 
ideas and information for this to improve. The engagement of the professionals has been central with these meetings. And while as a researcher, I'm not directly involved with the youth, we are inviting youth to be interviewed. And so we are soliciting feedback and this will be part of our overall study findings. So the engagement and understanding the lived experience is absolutely central to the work that we're doing. And I love that you bring that up, Lisa, because I think as we've been talking on this season's podcast so far, we've tended to talk about lived experience being of parents or of youth. But I think especially here at the Institute where we center so much of our work around supporting the workforce, making sure that we have that authentic professional lived experience of the workers is so central. I think you're absolutely right. We need that input. We don't have all the answers. We need to know what's going on on the front lines. So Lisa, I wanted to follow up with you a little bit more because I know that you are an advocate for authentic representation in child welfare research. And I just wanted to hear a little bit more about your thoughts on what that means to you. Authentic representation in child welfare research or any other research for that matter means that researchers are incorporating all interested parties, ideally through all stages of the research process. So in child welfare, that means that we make sure that the perspectives of the people with lived experiences are part of the research. And so typically people think, well, that's young people in care or who have previously been in care and the system involved parents and families and foster parents. And as we just talked about the child welfare professionals and administrators, but even other interested parties. So thinking broadly about those who are interacting with these children and families and professionals. So that could be teachers, lawyers, these could be judges, medical professionals. So I want to stress that when I'm arguing for the need for authentic representation and research, that this is not just qualitative research when these different groups of people are interviewed by researchers. It is something that we need to consider. In fact, I would argue that it's necessary to consult with various interested parties across the research process. So that can start with the formation of the research agenda and determining research questions, identifying the sample. It can be decisions about data collection that can be informed by people with lived expertise, as can the data analysis. And then the interpretation of the results and the implications for policy and practice also absolutely need to include people with lived experiences. Often researchers are drawn to the population for many different reasons. And we may have some personal experience, but we may not. And it's just a passion. It's about social justice. It's about equity. There's lots of reasons that we do this research. If we are excluding people who have the lived expertise and experience, then we're potentially getting it wrong. And it is so much better for everyone if it's intentionally included from the beginning and throughout the entire research process. I love what Lisa said. One of the key pieces of this pilot is actually the use of the permanency pact. Liz mentioned that earlier But the permanency pact was developed by the foster club. So it was fully developed by youth with lived experiences. It was a group of youth who 
really identified the specific kinds of support that we need as we make that transition to adulthood. And so Liz mentioned a couple, you know, do I have a place to go for the holidays? Do I have someone to help me with my educational plan or applying to colleges? So there's, I think, 45 different items that really span all different types of support. But again, I just want to honor and kind of acknowledge that that was directly from youth with those lived experiences that helped us professionals and researchers figure out what is most important. So Lisa, what are some best practices for other researchers to consider when doing this work? The biggest priority that I have for best practices about compensation for those with lived experiences. It is unethical to ask people with lived experiences to be part of the research team without some form of compensation. I'm specifically talking about financial compensation and making sure that if we are asking them to be experts, that they are compensated for their ideas. We have to respect all that they bring. And in addition to compensating them financially, I think that we need to make sure that we're disseminating the findings. And I would argue that it's once again unethical if we conduct child welfare research simply for the purpose of getting a publication and an esoteric study. We need to be action-oriented and seeking knowledge that directly informs policy and practice. And it's probably an entire another podcast thinking about how research policy practice partnership models can bring together the different groups and interested parties along with the people with lived expertise. But this is the direction that I think we really need to be heading if we're going to do authentic research. If we're going to do research that has authentic representation of people with lived experiences, because this is what is needed for us to use local data and answer questions that policymakers and practitioners need to best serve and work with children and families and communities. And I've had conversations with other researchers, too, around this idea that providing these opportunities for youth, parents, workers to share their lived experiences, the more opportunities they have and the more exposure that they get to their comfort level, they do get a sense of expertise, right? And they are then able to more effectively utilize their experiences should they want to go on and work with policymakers or continue their relationship with researchers and advisory councils and those types of things. So in addition, I think to the financial compensation, I loved what you said, Lisa, around involving them at every stage so that they're also gaining skills from this and understanding the process and can understand how their voice is being incorporated into this work. Absolutely. These skills are transferable And the other thing that I would add is the skills are transferable for the people with lived expertise who are getting involved. It can be empowering and they can also be promoting change that they see is necessary. The issues are different looking from the inside, from the outside. I think it's really important and an exciting opportunity. And I'm thrilled that it's part of what we're doing with the Follow the Love pilot project. And I'm pretty excited that this continues to be a priority for the Institute. Any other best practices that you wanted to mention? The last best practice is one that is constantly hard for me, but when we're finding people with lived experience, we need to dig deep. 
it's not necessarily the first person who we have the contact information for that we talk to. We want to talk to people who are harder to reach. We want to engage with them. And we want to engage with people that may have things that we are going to find uncomfortable to hear. We want to talk to people who haven't had great experiences. We want to talk to people who maybe the systems should have served and didn't, or that they served in a way that wasn't healthy or helpful. So making sure that you know that you're doing it right when you're hearing some things that are making you uncomfortable. That would be another piece of advice or best practice that I'd recommend and fully acknowledge that it's hard to do. The only thing I would add to that is just to, again, state my appreciation for the Institute's focused on lived experience, including the frontline worker. I know that a lot of the work the Institute does is focused on workforce development I'm also doing other work in that area and why I so appreciated our monthly kind of check-in meetings with the facilitators is to really see how are things going. This was our best laid out plan. So to really hear about the very real challenges and the things that help to make that connection between what the work looks like on the ground, all the way through the agency to policymakers and also hopefully the families and youth that we work with can see those changes as well. And I think that's a really great point, Annette, and really speaks to the importance, again, maybe as another best practice of maintaining that consistent communication with the folks that are providing their experiences or their expertise. I think one thing that I'm hearing across responses is this idea of trust too, and relationship building, because I hear you, Lisa. It can be really hard to dig deep and find those harder to reach folks who maybe have decided that, okay, you're a researcher with Florida State University. You're just another piece of the system, right? You're another part of the system. I have no interest in telling you my story. We've had that experience before. And so I do think that it's important as much as we can for us to build those relationships, much like we're doing within this pilot program. Also, as researchers, we have to build that rapport. We have to build that trust so that folks, to your point, Lisa, feel comfortable sharing the uncomfortable because that's really where we're going to see change happen. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. So Lisa, we talked earlier about Liz's experience with relational permanency and in particular for youth who are aging out of care. I know that you do a lot of work in this area. Can you tell us a little bit about your upcoming projects or your current projects? I'm really excited to share that I have a book that's about youth engagement and youth perspectives. So I have written a book titled Some Type of Way that will be published in the summer of 2023. And it is an ethnography of young people who are transitioning out of care. So I follow five youth and some of their peers and the service providers who work with them as they leave care and navigate life on their own. So it's a very strong critique of how society has failed these young people, but it is also a story of hope and excitement of their grit and fortitude as they are becoming adults and living life on their own. So it's once again called Some Type of Way and comes out in 2023. Excellent. We look forward to that. Thank you. 
Elizabeth, I'd like to end our conversation with you. As we mentioned, so much of our work that we do at the Institute is meant to support the child welfare workforce. It's crucial that workers are given opportunities to not only participate in our studies, but also to participate in our processes, because our ultimate goal is to inform meaningful change to support you while you're supporting Florida's families. So from your perspective as a child welfare worker, what's the number one piece of advice that you'd give to child welfare researchers about collaborating with workers on their projects? I have one piece of advice, but it's kind of twofold. (laughs) So I would call it like trickled down lived experiences. Make sure that you're working with workers who are talking and listening to those that they are serving with lived experiences. I think Annette and Lisa did a really good job of this being built into the research in that our check-ins and even in our debrief final interview, they asked questions about what I observed, but they also asked about direct feedback that I had heard from the young people, caregivers, adults that we were interacting with. And it kind of set up this process of changing the whole system to be lived experience informed, not just mine, but who I was working with. Additionally to that, another way that I would say lived experience trickle down is also for researchers to get their own lived experience. A lot of our community-based care agencies run on volunteers for a lot of our help and our assistance programs. And while I understand in certain circumstances, researchers have to maintain some distance or some objectivity and things like that, I definitely would encourage them to get involved in some small way. Obviously, I'd encourage anyone to become a foster parent, but (laughs) if they can't get that far, volunteer at a drive that we're doing or something like that. So you get your own lived experience. And like Lisa said, there might be many different reasons that brought you to research in this area, but at least it gives you some kind of personal investment where you have your own experience working with the agency. I'd like to thank all of our guests for sharing their knowledge and experiences with us today. If you're interested in learning more about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at www.ficw.fsu.edu. You can also follow the Institute on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at FSU Child Welfare. Thank you to our executive producer, Mariana Tutwiler, our assistant director of communications, Emily Joyce, and our audio engineer and editor, Izzy Kring. And finally, thanks to all of you for tuning in today. I'm Dr. Lisa Magruder for the Florida Institute for Child Welfare.